0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Sip With Me. I'm your host, Iwana Kekados.
1: And I'm your host, Erin Carlson. We'll release an episode for you every Monday at 10.30 a.m. Central Time, which means you can listen to us during your commute, after work workout, or even enjoy a drink with us during your very own Monday night happy hour.
0: And who doesn't like to have a little fun on a Monday night? Don't forget to download all of our recipes on sipwithme.org.
1: And be sure to check out our mystery bartender, whip up all of our favorite drink recipes on our TikTok at sipwithme underscore.
0: Hey guys, and welcome to the fifth official episode of season three. Today, we've decided to make the Crime of Passion cocktail. And this cocktail recipe is made with ice cream, raspberry syrup, rum, passion fruit syrup and cream soda it's truly the best cocktail to sip on while you read your favorite true crime books
1: so grab your crime of passion and let's turn the page to a new chapter of true crime featuring our interview with famed writer diane fanning
0: welcome back to episode five of season three we are so excited to have our second guest of the season Diane Fanning is the author of 26 published books. She covers everything true crime, has been a consultant for 48 hours, and has been featured on 2020 The Today Show and Deadly Women. So we are so excited to have you on, Diane. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. So before we jump into um, our questions, I think we would love for you to kind of talk about your background and give our listeners an idea of who you are and how you really got into writing true crime.
2: Uh, It's kind of strange because I was a chemistry major. And uh, (laughs) so I wasn't supposed to grow up to be a writer, but it turns out I did. And uh, the way I got to true crime was really sideways. And backwards, I was trying to get an agent for a fiction book. It, it was a crime book, but it was fiction. And uh, at that time, I was watching um, the what the progress of a friend of mine who had written true crime books, Susie Spencer, and I was looking. I was looking for my place in the writing world. And she thought I'd be good at that. And I said, well, look, I got a day job and a kid in college, uh, how could I sit in a trial? And she said, pick one that's already been through trial. And I said, okay. And so I was looking around and just happened to stumble across a, a show on 48 Hours about Tommy Lynn Sells, the serial killer. And when I saw what that little girl that he attacked and left for dead in Del Rio went through, she instantly became my hero. Because back when I was nine years old, a man was driving through our neighborhood through an area that there were just cows and fields all around. And he came to a stop and asked for directions and my friend and I tried to give him directions and he said, I don't really understand what you're saying. Would you come up here and look at my map? Well, I was a pretty innocent kid. And so I thought, sure, I'll go look at his map and show him on his map. But when I walked up to his open car door, instead of a map, he was exposing himself. And yeah. he snaked out one hand real fast and grabbed onto my upper arm and tried to pull me into the car. Just then, another vehicle came up over the hill and laid on his horn. And the guy that was grabbing me let go and drove off with his door still swinging open. From watching... a reruns of Dragnet on television. I knew there was one thing I had to do. I had to get that driver's license number. So I memorized the plates. And I kept repeating them over and over as I went home. I told my mother. She called it into the police. A couple of days later, they stopped his vehicle. And they found in the trunk of his car a evidence that tied him to the disappearance, sexual assault and murder of an eight-year-old girl the month before in a neighboring community.
1: My gosh.
2: And because of that and what I'd been through, I started actually reading criminal psychology books. And a lot of it was way, way over my head, but I struggled through them as best I could. And when I saw the story of that little girl that Sells had, had killed her best friend and then reached up and slit her throat and left her for dead. Little Crystal Searles was my hero. And it was an absolute have to that I had to write about her. And so I sat down and, and I wrote a chapter. Of this, the scene in the house where her friend was killed, and that little 10 year old girl just so inspired me that probably that passion drove me to do the best writing I'd ever done up to that point. So I sent it off to an agent, and this was before agents normally accepted things by email, but I thought, what the heck? So I sent <laughs> it, and <laughs> within 24 hours, I had an agent,
0: wow. and then.
2: I didn't know really what I was doing. And uh, she walked me through the steps and we did multiple revisions of preparing a a proposal to present to uh, publishers. Once we got that finished, she sent it off and I got two different publishers who both offered me two book deal. And I was running from them.
1: Wow. I mean, we can definitely sympathize with that with our podcast just kind of you know happening weird ways backwards and sideways and not really having a plan but I think that's how the best things happen in life you know when you follow like your own lived experiences and you follow your passion it shows in the work you do Um, and what what is that writing process what is the process of picking stories like what is that like for you because I think there's so many people out there that are super interested in these stories Um, but especially I know in the younger community um, online maybe a lot of people aren't as exposed to written works of true crime as we once were because there's so much content out there you know there's so many podcasts there's so many shows what is the like process to write like and can you give people like a glimpse into how that goes and how it feels to do that
2: well, right now, it's, it's between COVID and the glut of true crime out there in other media, it's become very difficult. But traditionally, what I would do when, it, when writing a book is I'd gather up all the names I could and start interviewing people. And the people I would interview, one question I would always ask is, who else should I talk to? And that gives me a good starting point to go find other people, people that maybe didn't get in the news or on the television, but who have um, personal perspectives that are of value. So, um, And one of the people that I talked to that I got originally with that first book was, you know, the serial killer, Tommy Lynn Sells. And um, the, he was at the time, although he was a death row person, he was at the time in the Bear County Jail, which is in San Antonio. And um, so I called the sheriff's office to get uh, permission to question him about stuff. And they said they didn't have a setup like that, that there wasn't any way to do it. You just have to contact the prisoner. So I did. And I told him exactly what I was going to do. I didn't try to trick him or anything. And he readily agreed to talk to me well of course he'd now been in the bear county jail for more than six months and had not had one single visitor so i guess he was hungry for anyone to talk to him so i got in there and we had to get through some weird preliminary stuff like uh talking about money and talking about sex and i told him i wasn't giving you either and then we got got down to business and um And it was amazing listening to him and finding out his motivations. And, you know, when you're talking to someone like that, you always have to follow up with people to see if some of the stuff he's telling you has has any truth in it at all. And so my first go-to was the Texas Rangers. And then I actually talked to his mother and this was the most shocking thing of all to me. I wanted to confirm the details of his childhood that Tommy had given me. And they included the fact that his mother uh, had twins when Tommy was born and his twin sister had died at 18 months. And she had then left him with her aunt and, and he'd actually become a part of the family. So that by the time he was five years old, that was the only family he really knew. And when the aunt requested custody so that she could enroll Tommy in school, Tommy's mother came and jerked him out of that house and wouldn't let him go back again. So the trauma started there. And then when she got tired of him, she sent him to a pedophile's house to live. Wow. And it was just, it was just horrible. how that little boy grew up. And I, I said, I said, listen, this is what Tommy told me. And I I want to talk to you because I want to make sure or find out if any of this is true." And when I got done asking her about different things, she said, well, you know, a lot of people have been through a whole lot worse and they didn't go around killing people.
0: And I went, bingo, that's where it came from. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. And and one of my questions kind of going off of that, you mentioned Tommy Sells a lot. I would love for you to kind of take us through your experience and also um, just kind of the process of helping find justice for um, Julie Harper, who was obviously wrongfully convicted um, in the murder of her child. Um, And we we come to find out it was Tommy Sells and and you played a huge role in that. So I'd love for you to kind of chat through how you went about that um, and kind of how did that impact you personally as well?
2: I was totally unaware of Julie Ray's case. And I just happened to be home alone, scrolling through and caught 2020. And honestly, at first, I was so skeptical because there's her family, her friends, her lawyers and Julie all saying, oh, yeah, well, she's innocent. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've heard <laughs> this so many times yeah. before. But then the, the uh, prosecutor came on the screen. And he made so many ridiculously false statements like, oh, nobody takes a knife from your kitchen and kills somebody in the house with it. Well, yeah, Tommy's done that. (laughs) And nobody comes into a house and doesn't leave fingerprints. And I go, yeah, Tommy does that. At this point, I was about a a month before my deadline to have the book completed. And I was going through a lot of trouble because honestly, I really wanted to cut it off with Tommy Lynn cells, But he'd gotten angry at the Texas Rangers because he felt they insulted him. He was trying to help them and they were treating him like a criminal. Oh, wonder why. Um, so far, they'd confirmed 20 murders. So yeah, wonder why they treated him like a criminal. But uh, so he, was gonna talk, he wasn't going to talk to them anymore, he, them anymore. And so I was the only person he was communicating with like this. And so I had other police departments, private investigators, victims, family members, all contacting me to get answers from cells. I didn't want to be in that position. And I knew if, if you talked to the Rangers again, they could take over that function and I wouldn't have to worry about it. So I wrote to him about the show I saw. I didn't tell him any names, any places, any time frame, I just wrote to him about the things that the district attorney said and um, how ludicrous they were because I knew he had done some of those things that he said weren't possible. So Tommy writes back and says, so was that murder maybe on the 13th, like two days before my Springfield murder? Wow. And that was the date. It absolutely was the date. And it freaked me out. So I wrote back, and said, who told you about this case? So I knew he was on death row. And on death row, you don't have access to TV. So I knew he hadn't seen the show I had seen. And he wrote back and he was just so angry with me. He says, nobody told me about that show. I've committed a lot more murders than you know about. There are a bunch of people sitting in prison for things I commit committed. Wow. And I don't care. And I was like, okay, I guess um, to get past the anger, I need to pay him another personal visit on death row. So death row was tricky because I couldn't get on as an official journalistic person because Tommy had me on his visitors list. And so when I asked the people in charge to take me off his visitors list, they said, no, only the prisoner could do that. So I couldn't be official. So that meant when I went in, the only thing I could take was a roll of quarters for the drink machine, right? So I couldn't take a pen, couldn't take a pencil, nothing. And so I had to go in there and memorize everything he said to me while he was speaking, start describing things that were very interesting, like um, what uh, the neighbor looked like. He thought the neighbor was a man and it, it was a woman that looked a lot like a man. Everybody said that from a distance. And so he's describing all sorts of things that just line up with what everybody knows. And so I decided, I, I called the 2020 producers and I said, talk to me about this. What do you think? They, when they said that I didn't have enough to get her a new trial, I had a decision to make. This was my first true crime book. I had my credibility on the line. So I wrote it as if Tommy confessed to this, but not as if Tommy did this so that somebody who knew more than me could take it and run with it. So when the book came out, um, first uh, thing I heard of was Julie's mother getting into contact with me, and then there was Julie's appeals attorney, and then there was the Innocence Project. So suddenly I got sucked into this vortex. Um, really, my big role was as a catalyst I, that's yeah. how I look at it. I didn't, you know, yeah, I went and testified at the prison review board, but I didn't think of any of that as, as, a that much, but, you know, then I did an affidavit for the, um, for the, the, tr- the next trial, when she finally got a new trial, normally you're called in to testify. And that was the original plan. I had successfully bad the prosecutor, after he badmouthed me that he didn't want me in that courtroom. So he agreed to accepting my affidavit without my presence. So (laughs) that went well. (laughs) And uh, uh, then um, her new trial, she was found not guilty. And since then, and she went through this arduous process to get herself uh, declared Innocent and get an actual innocent certificate of innocence from the state of Illinois. And she did that. And, the, you know, when, when you're wrongfully convicted in Illinois, you have two options. Or you, can, or you can try to get a certificate of innocence. And that's what she wanted to get. The main, main important thing for that, for her, was that if she didn't do that, no one would ever try to find justice for her son. Wow.
1: And how did this case, how did it impact your future of, of writing and your, the future of you know, picking what to write about and, and how you felt in the process? And you know, how did it influence like, your journey and kind of like, add to your overall experience to coming to where you are now?
2: Well, for one thing, when you write true crime, um, you get a lot of criticism for what you're writing about. And, um, and I mean, I even lost writer friends who approve of what I was doing and uh, said, I was glorifying criminals. And I felt that with this happening, this showed that what I was doing was important that, what I was doing could make a real difference. And it, it taught me to look for red flags. And I, um, I used to go to high schools quite a bit and talk about red flags and relationships from experiences I drew from writing about serial killers. And behavior, which I learned from spousal murderers. And so that was um, important lessons. You know, and the other thing, just knowing about people like Tommy Lynn Sells made me realize the importance of my awareness when I am out in public to be aware of what's going on around me. It's like one mother came to me and said, "I think my daughter uh, is now alive because of you." And I said, "What?" She said, "Well." I had her read my book. She was a young teen. She said I had her read the book because she was so open and accepting of everybody. And the, a man came up with puppies in his van and asked her if she wanted to see the puppies. And all her daughter did was run. Wow. Ran as far away from that man as she could. She so said before she read your book, she would have gone up and looked at those puppies. So things like that make you realize the validity and importance of writing true crime and pointing out to people who may be unaware. Um, You know, in a way, it's nice to maintain innocence and ignorance of crime's bad side, but it leaves you vulnerable. Mm
0: -hmm. That's amazing. At least for me, I feel like you've impacted so many lives and and have really done so many great things um, to make people aware but also to help um, find justice for for Julie Harper so thank you Um, and kind of going off of that I would just like to know um, do you have any recommendations for maybe a first time true crime reader or someone who kind of wants to start reading more um, true crime books and kind of get into that community do you recommend um, any of your books what what book in particular do you think
2: is good? For- I I think um, for a starter book, probably my best book to read is Written in Blood. Uh, it covered two murders over a long period of time committed by a very respect- respectable man. And um, it is very thorough. I had access to incredible information on his background. And so it's it's I, th- I think it's probably might be my best written crime book. The other one that really stands out to me is Gone Forever because I had such a huge emotional connection to it yes. because I read the personal diaries of the victim. Wow. And that really uh, hit my heart. And she was someone, I even cried because I wouldn't be able to get to know her she was just that kind of woman. And um and, and yeah, I am a real sucker for dynamic professional women who become victims in their own homes. So that did play into it. But um oh, I just wish I could have known Susan McFarland. But one thing I do with all my books, when I whenever I pick a title of a case, I'm looking for a case that's going to teach me something new. Um, whether it's like with the Dean Fiello case in, in Manhattan, where he, uh, where I had to learn about lasers and electrolysis and trans guys and all sorts of stuff, you know, that I didn't know before. Mm -hmm. And, And up to, uh, my bitter remains where I know this sounds ghoulish, but I never had a killer that, that did, um, that dismembered a body, and so, you know, there was something there for me to learn. And uh-huh. plus, it had a, a, a TV show of characters, an actress, an act, uh, a musician, and an artist. I mean, what more could you ask for? I'd like to delve into things where I can learn, uh, and expand my horizon, and thus span the horizon of my fans.
1: I think that's a huge draw to the true crime community and why a lot of people get attracted to these stories and they wanna consume so much is that, one, not only are there so many untold stories out there, there, there is so much to learn. Um, and there is not only so much to learn, but like you mentioned, there is a lot of emotional connection a lot of shared experience, a lot of empathy that people have, you know, with a lot of um, not only victims, but also people that end up committing some of these crimes. You can empathize sometimes with shared experience, with childhood trauma, with abuse in the home, things like that. Um, And I think that's a huge draw for a lot of people. What? Why do you think true crime right now is so huge? I mean, we, we mentioned the, the glut of, of media that's out there right now. Why do you think it does have such such a huge, like almost cult-like following the, the last guest we had on Murder, Murder News? They have essentially created what they call like a mini online cult that is growing that covers different cases and different types of media um, and centralizes everything. Why do you feel... That it has become so large, and especially with with the the pandemic and everyone being, you know, stuck at home consuming media. um, How how do you think that has happened, and where is it going from your perspective?
2: I think when uh, the world turns into a dark place, which it's been for the last few years, uh, that people reach out to anything they can think will help them understand the world around them and protect themselves from what's bad. And so um, I, I think that people latch on to things that they can manage, um, because these are crimes that happen to other people. So they can learn from them, they can learn how to protect themselves, They can learn how to uh, identify danger. And and the cases that most shows are putting forward are cases that have already been solved. And the bad guy's in jail. So you end up getting a sense of fulfillment that good can beat evil. Mm -hmm. And particularly when things are dark. Uh, whatever is causing the darkness from the pandemic. I mean, you go all the way back to World War II. I think, you know, detective magazines were huge Mm -hmm. things in World War II. And it's something that you can get your hands around without being damaged by. And I think when you see this huge audience of women, a lot of it goes back to how children were raised. You know, people like me in my age, we were given dolls if we were girls. We were given more uh, violent and active toys if we were boys. So girls didn't, in their play, learn how to cope with bad things. But boys did. I mean, they had guns and knives and bows and arrows. So they learned about coping against the evil people as children. But women didn't. So women need this true crime experience more than men do
0: yeah i completely agree with that um i've always been fascinated by true crime and i think um even just as a young teenager and young adult um just listening to these stories has made me so aware of my surroundings um and you know living in the coming from the suburbs and moving to the city um as a young 18 year old you know i was very naive so being able to kind of go through these stories and and kind of understand both perspectives of the person who did the crime as well as the victim um, and it, it made me more aware of my surroundings. So I I, I can relate to that um, a lot. Kind of finishing off, um, I would love to kind of know what you've really been up to during COVID and kind of what your future, are plan, future plans are, um, both with writing um, and kind of what you're working on right now.
2: Well, uh, right now I am not working on a true crime because one thing, I don't feel comfortable traveling.
0: Uh-huh. And
2: the, the other thing is, you know, nobody out there is gonna want me sitting down at their kitchen table talking to them. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just not safe. And, yeah. you know, so um, I feel very limited in what I can do and I don't think I can do a complete story at this time. So I've got two manuscripts in the work. One of them I'm doing a final edit on and it is a police procedural uh, crime fiction. And, um, similar to some other stuff I've done. And the one I'm, the other one I'm working on in the writing process is I'm just having so much fun with it. I, you know, who knows if anybody will want to publish it, but it's been a blast. It's about this, um, crazy guy who is doing insane experiments. And sometimes he causes people to die. That's not really his objective, but hey, it happens. <laughs> and and then there's this cop who's trying to run him down. Wow. So wow. Um, yeah, and so, you know, he's got his little sidekick and and uh, he's he's doing strange, strange things, abducting people and putting them in cages and feeding them foods they don't want to eat. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> so I'm it. having a blast. It's just a wacko gonzo book and
1: I'm just having fun writing it. That sounds like a good book to write yeah. to, you know, work through all the emotions and trauma yeah. of this year.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> can you tell our listeners um, where they can, you know, find more information about you, where they can engage with you, where they can get their books, anything that you want to tell them?
2: Well, I have, um, of course, a Facebook page, and then I have some affiliated pages with it, and that's just easy going to Facebook and finding it. But um, I also have a website, which is Diane Fanning. Uh, Wait a minute, is it? Yeah. It's dianefanning.com, just simple, real simple. So you can go there and go to my website. I've got uh, information on each and every one of my books. On each page, there's a link to my email, so you can send me an email if you'd like. Um, I've been trying to regularly produce a newsletter. I have been failing miserably, but (laughs) I'm going to try to get that back on track. I keep trying, Mm -hmm. but there's a sign up for the newsletter on the website too. And of course I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram and Lord knows, I hope I don't have to join any more social media platforms.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Well, Diane, thank you so, so much. Um, Like we said at the beginning, um, we really want our listeners to remember that, written work is still out there. In my opinion, it is still the foundation of what built this community. And I definitely um, think people should check you out, read your books, um, and obviously also reach out to Diane and interact because she responded to us very gracefully and (laughs) took time to talk with us. Um, And again, we can't thank you enough. So. was wonderful, and hopefully, we will connect again in the future and hear more about your new books.
2: Okay, great. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Diane.
1: This is Sip With Me News. I'm Erin Carlson.
0: And I'm Ioanna Kaykados. Here are the things you need to know from this week's headlines. The number of hospitalizations from COVID-19 set yet another record this past Saturday as cases continue to surge and public health officials warn of a worsening outlook with the holiday season just weeks away. More than 91,000 people were hospitalized with the virus on Saturday with 18,000 in intensive care units. Across the country, medical personnel are now bracing for what they fear will be a new wave of infections after millions of Americans ignored the advice of public health experts and traveled for the Thanksgiving holiday. For the moment, daily deaths are lower than at their peak this spring when doctors hadn't yet figured out the most effective treatment methods. But with daily deaths hitting 2,000 twice last week, they're approaching the record of 2,700. Many fear the nation will soon hit 3,000, the equivalent of a September 11th attack every single day.
1: And in politics, the Biden-Harris transition team announced last week an all-female senior communications team. The roles of White House communications director and press secretary, along with their deputies, will be filled with women close to Biden and Harris. The history-making team will bring both a breadth of communications and political experience to the White House staff.
0: Tens of thousands of critics protested across France this past Saturday against the proposed security law that would restrict the filming of police officers. Officers in Paris who were advised to behave responsibly during the demonstrations repeatedly fired tear gas to disperse rowdy protesters who set fire to France's central bank and threw paving stones. The crowd included journalists, journalism students, left-wing activists, migrants' rights groups, and citizens of varied political stripes, expressed anger over what they perceive as hardening police tactics in recent years. The prime minister announced Friday that he would appoint a commission to redraft Article 24, but he backtracked after hearing from angry lawmakers. The commission is now expected to make new proposals by early next year on the relationship between the media and police.
1: And for your final headline, President Trump last week announced a pardon for former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. In a tweet, Trump said, it is my great honor to announce that General Michael T. Flynn has been granted a full pardon. Congratulations to General Flynn and his wonderful family. I know you will now have a truly fantastic Thanksgiving. The former NSA had pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI, but later, under pressure from President Trump, backtracked on his statement.
0: Those are your headlines for the week. Be sure to tune in next week for the news you need to know now. Thanks for listening to sip with me with Ioana and Aaron. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, sipwithme.org. There you can find our recently released cocktail book, as well as other exciting sip with me content.
1: And if you love our podcast, don't forget to leave us a review on apple podcasts and follow us on Instagram at sipwithme me underscore. Join us next week for two very special guests with a personal stake in the fight for justice.